you would, turn in your New Testaments to 2 Thessalonians. We're going to look at a couple of verses in particular in that epistle for our lesson of this hour. 2 Thessalonians, we'll be looking at some thoughts at the end of chapter 2. It's wonderful to be with everyone this morning, and it is encouragement to be able to be here and worship God together with you. I did want to mention before getting into the lesson, I had the opportunity to go visit with Ronnie last night at the hospital. Um, he indicated that after talking with the doctors and about the special care he needed to take and the rest of the family and staying away from sick people and stuff, that he was just not going to risk that coming here. He had originally planned to come to worship, um, but that's why he's not here. And so we, we probably won't see him for a while for that reason. And so uh, we're going to miss him as well as Sharon, but let's continue to pray for him. He did mention one thing, though, as well that I wanted to mention. He said that him and Sharon and the family have been overwhelmed by the outpouring of love and care and concern and, and all the acts of love that they've been given from cards and calls to food and, and everything in between. And uh, that didn't surprise me. I was certainly glad to hear it, that they had received such love and concern and, and that the brethren here have reached out to, to them. But I know that to be the case at this congregation, and I think you're to be commended for that. We love each other, and that's certainly been expressed in many aspects and in many situations and circumstances, but especially with the high towers in this time of, of trial, and um, certainly want to commend you for that, and I know that they very much appreciate that. So keep that up, and let's continue to look out for each other. In Second Thessalonians chapter 2, there is a verse that has caught my attention, and Every once in a while, you'll read Scripture and you'll see a particular phrase that you maybe not have uh, recognized from time to time, or maybe you just haven't thought about it as it pertains to the language used. You know, the apostles, especially Paul throughout his writings, used a lot of superlatives to stress just how confident we can be in what God has provided us and how much God is working for our salvation and how much He wants us to be with Him in eternity with that fellowship we just sang about being consummated in heaven. And so there are various phrases throughout Scripture, as we know each and every word is inspired, that especially pack a very big punch for us and give us an extra boost, I think, of confidence and comfort. And for me, in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, and verse 16 and 17, we see one of those. The Apostle Paul, after talking about what had troubled them and correcting some of the things that they were struggling with as false teaching had entered their minds, he said in verse 2, Don't be shaken in mind or troubled either by spirit or word or by letter as if from us, as though the day of the Lord had already come. After he kind of clears that up a little bit and shows them that, as I've told you before, that day's not coming until these things come to pass, he says in verse 16, now may our Lord Jesus Christ Himself and our God and Father, who has loved us and given us everlasting consolation and good hope by grace, comfort your hearts and establish you in every good word and work. For me, that idea of everlasting consolation, eternal comfort, other translations say, or age-during comfort, it resonates with me. It, it kind of 
gets me to understand a little more just what kind of comfort and solace we have in Christ and just what extent God's gifts go to for us and, and how much it will help us in this life that we live under the sun, connected with that good hope. It doesn't just say that God's granted us comfort. He's granted us everlasting consolation, everlasting comfort. It's constant and unending. It's consistent. It is true in any and every circumstance. It's, it's not just everlasting in regard to its duration, but in regard to its very quality. There's not a circumstance or situation that we can find ourselves in where this comfort is not provided and cannot overwhelm those struggles that we go through from time to time in this life. He's gifted it to the Thessalonians, which would allow them to overcome the struggles and troubles and maybe doubts and fears they had that were sparked by this false teaching. The everlasting comfort God had gifted them with would get them through that as they considered the truth of the matter. He's gifted that to us as well. And as it could sustain them and all that they went through, it can certainly sustain us. And what I wanted to do is to break down those two verses and consider the everlasting consolation and good hope as they stand within their own merit, but also consider everything surrounding this because these are things that are gifted to certain people. These are things that are gifted and are accessed by certain conditions. And these are things that are true within a certain sphere. And so we need to understand how these things pertain to us. Consider first the gift giver. He says in verse 16 that our Lord Jesus Christ himself and our God and Father have given us everlasting consolation and good hope by grace. He says first that our God and Father or our Lord Jesus Christ and then our God and Father has given us this gift. Usually it's in the reverse order and we'll kind of note why in a moment here he mentions Jesus first. But notice he says that our God and Father has given us this everlasting consolation. In James chapter 1 and in verse 17, after clearing up some inconsistencies in the way that at least James perceived the brethren to whom he was writing had in their minds and in their thoughts about trials and temptations, that temptation doesn't come from God. He said, every good gift and every perfect gift is from above and comes down from the Father of lights with whom there is no variation or shadow of turning. Everything good comes from the Father. If there is something that we need, something that we enjoy, whether physical or spiritual, it is from God and we should praise Him and thank Him and glorify Him for it. This everlasting consolation is no different. This good hope is no different. It comes only from the Father. And so when there are times of struggle and tribulation and disorientation, like we see all the time in the Psalms where they understand that God reigns and they understand that truth is a firm foundation and it stands forever and it's settled in heaven forever and, and that in the end judgment will come and the righteous and the wicked will be separated and justice will be served. There are still times where we struggle in this imperfect world and God is the one that we should turn to. Notice that in James chapter 1, in verse 2, he mentions the joy that we should count it when we fall into various trials. And he says, knowing that the testing of your faith produces patience, but let patience have its perfect work, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking nothing. But notice verse 5. 
If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask of God who gives to all liberally and without reproach, and it will be given to him. He's trying to tell the readers here that these trials, suffering, anything negative, it doesn't come from God. He's not the cause of it, but he's the answer to it. And we should always turn to him. If we need something, we need to turn to God. He can get us through it. But you notice there in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2 and in verse 16, he does not just say that it's from God our Father, but firstly he mentions that it is from our Lord Jesus Christ that we receive this everlasting consolation. And that's the key. It was God's plan from before time and eternity that everything mankind would need, everything mankind would require in order to be in fellowship with Him, in order to receive comfort, in order to gain victory, would be through solely His Son. This is why in John 14 and verse 6, Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through Me. And that seems to go without saying, but it's important, especially when we consider how we have a relationship with Jesus, because this everlasting consolation and this good hope, it comes from the Father, but only through the source of Jesus Christ. This is why he said in Ephesians 1 and in verse 3, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. The answer God provides to hard times, to conquering temptation and sin and death in the end is only and solely through Jesus. Everything is summed up in Him. As Colossians mentioned, He is the preeminent one. What does that look like? Considering Colossians chapter 1, or rather in Colossians uh, chapter 2 and verse 6, He encouraged them after establishing the preeminence of Christ and how everything from God flows through Him. As you therefore have received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in Him, rooted and built up in Him and established in the faith, as you have been taught, abounding in it with thanksgiving. He'd go on to say in verse 9 that in Him dwells the fullness of the Godhead bodily, and you are complete in Him who is the head of all principality and power. And so when we consider this everlasting consolation and this good hope, it is not separate from Jesus, and Jesus is not separate from the Word. He says that you are built up and established in Him, walk in Him, established in the faith, that object of faith that is the gospel. And this is germane to the fact of the giving and receiving of the gifts. The fact that it comes from God the Father and it comes through Jesus, and therefore we have that everlasting consolation. We need to realize that our reception of it and the conditions they place on our being given those gifts is through those relationships we sustain, whether it is with God as our Father or with Jesus as our Lord and King. Notice in 1 Peter chapter 1 and in verse 13, after Peter talked about these people being begotten again to a living hope, they are children of God. The very everlasting consolation that is under consideration in our study this morning is because we're children of God and He gives this to His children. Notice the conditions. Notice the expectation. Notice how we receive these kinds of blessings in verse 13 of 1 Peter 1. He says, Therefore, gird up the loins of your mind, be sober, and rest your hope fully upon the grace that is to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ as obedient children. And he qualifies that. What does that mean? What does that look like? Not conforming yourselves 
to the former lust as in your ignorance. But as he who called you is holy, your father, you also be holy in all your conduct because it's written, be holy for I am holy. It is the children that receive everlasting consolation and good hope from the father. But it is the children who are acting as children. They're obedient. That's where these blessings come from. And you notice the same thing with Jesus. It is from our Lord Jesus Christ. In Colossians, again in chapter 1 and verse 13, he explains that God has delivered us from the power of darkness and conveyed us into the kingdom of the Son of His love, in whom we have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of sins. We are subjects of the King in His kingdom. He is certainly our Savior. He is our friend. He is our elder brother. He is our King. He is our Lord. And every blessing that He provides and that connects with all of those other descriptions of our relationship with Him are headed up in the fact that He has the authority to give it. And if He has the authority to give it, He has the authority to dictate what the conditions are. He's telling them that you are subjects in that kingdom of which He is King. And in order to receive any of the blessings of the kingdom, including this comfort that is available in any circumstance and endures throughout eternity, and this good hope of a home in heaven, you've got to submit to Him. You've got to live before Him as He is your King. And so He describes it in this way in chapter 3, as we've recently studied. If you're raised with Christ, and we're raised with Him to sit in the heavenly places in Christ, where Christ is, He'll say, sitting at the right hand of God, Colossians 3 and verse 1. If that's the case, set your mind on things above, not on things of the earth. For you died and your life is hidden with Christ and God. When Christ who is our life appears, you will also appear with Him in glory. If we just think about this as it pertains to our looking to the heavenly reward, we're looking up to heaven toward our goal, toward toward being in the incorruptible body, toward being in heaven for eternity, toward having that mansion that is prepared for us. If that's the only thing we're thinking about reading Colossians 1 through 4, we're doing ourselves in the text a disservice because the primary point is that you're looking up in heaven at the throne where Jesus is at the right hand of God, reigning as king, and that's your perspective. I'm looking up to find out what the king would have for me to do, how the king would have for me to live. I'm not only looking up to my reward, I'm looking up to the giver of my reward and the conditions he's placing upon it, which is why he goes on in verse 17 to say, whatever you do in word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. A heavenly perspective, looking up because we've been raised with Christ, is seated and grounded in our faithful obedience to His every command. That's the giver of it, and that's who He gives it to. But we can be confident in this everlasting consolation, being a reality, being something we can lean upon, in this good hope that we look forward to, we can be confident. And He gives us two reasons there in this very passage of Second Thessalonians. He says that He has loved us and given us this everlasting consolation and good hope. Because God has loved us and given us these gifts, we can be confident in their reality and in their efficacy in our lives. Notice in Romans, the fifth chapter, the reason and expression for our confidence in that hope, the fact that it does not disappoint, it's wrapped up in the love of God. He said in verse 5 of Romans chapter 11 that hope does not disappoint. Romans 5 and verse 5, rather. Because the love of God has been poured out in our hearts by the Holy Spirit has been given to us. And he explains why 
That confidence is rooted in His love. Look at what His love did for us. If when we were still without strength in due time, Christ died for the ungodly. For scarcely for a righteous man will one die, yet perhaps for a good man someone would even dare to die. But God demonstrates His own love. That's the love of verse 5. The reason the hope won't disappoint is because of His love. This is the demonstration of His love which gives us confidence. He demonstrated His own love toward us and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Much more than having now been justified by His blood, we shall be future saved from wrath through Him. For if when we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of His Son, that's past. Much more having been reconciled, we shall be future saved by His life. And not only that, but we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have received the reconciliation. He's talking about our confidence in what is future based on the reality of what God's love has accomplished for us in the past and in the present. If God has loved us that much and His love is that powerful, then you can be sure that everlasting consolation is yours and will be yours for eternity. That good hope is something that you have to look forward to now and it will be consummated because God loves us. We have every reason to be confident. In John, the third chapter, in verse 16, it tells us, God so loved the world, He gave His only begotten Son, that whoever believes in Him should not perish, but have everlasting life. The expressed love of God and the gift of His Son tells us that there's not a thing that He will not do for us if indeed we need it to get to heaven. In Romans, the eighth chapter, I want us to notice... In verse 31, when he begins that very familiar passage to us about nothing being able to separate from us, us from the love of Christ, he draws on this fact of God's love and the giving of His Son, giving us confidence that we will always have what we need, including everlasting consolation based on His love in the past and in the present. He says in Romans eight thirty one, What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare His own Son but delivered Him up for us all, how shall He not with Him also freely give us all things? He's saying, if God gave His Son back there, you should not doubt that He will give you anything that you need right here. We can have confidence because of His love for us. And we can have confidence because of Jesus' love for us. But I want us to, as Jesus' love certainly is the same as God's love, elaborate on that a little bit. See how it's expressed. It's not just expressed in His Death. That is the culmination of it. It is, it is the fountainhead from whence all of His love flows. But I want us to notice in Mark 6 and verse 34, this is a description of Jesus' love. Before He feeds the 5,000, it says, Jesus, when He came out, saw a great multitude and was moved with compassion for them. Not because they were hungry, though, physically. Notice, because they were like sheep not having a shepherd, so He began to teach them many things. His teaching is an expression of His love. And that love expressed in His teaching is where we actually get this everlasting consolation. In Mark 10 and verse 20, remember with the rich young ruler asking, what more do I lack? He says in verse 21, Mark records, Jesus looking at him loved him and then told him to sell all that he has. I'm going to give you the most difficult command that you've ever received, but it's coming from love. And then that culminated in John 15 and verse 13. If there was ever any disciple in Jesus' ministry that doubted his love because of the difficulty of his call to discipleship, the difficulty of the expectation and the sacrifice that was required, it would be completely dissipated and erased in the fact that he was willing to give his life for us. In John 15, 13, greater love has no one than this than to lay down one's life for his friends. 
I know that everything that he did is out of love, including everything he teaches us. And so we need to keep ourselves in the love of God in Christ. This is what Jude says in Jude 21. He says, keep yourselves in the love of God, looking for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ unto eternal life. Keep yourself in the love of God. You know, that's what he described in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. Before he mentions this gift that he had given or God had given them, he mentioned them in verse 13 as those who are brethren beloved by the Lord. And he knew they were brethren and beloved by the Lord based on God choosing them for salvation through sanctification by the Spirit and belief in the truth. He called them by the gospel of the apostles to the obtaining of that glory. And then he encourages them to stand in that love. Hold fast the traditions you were taught, whether by word or our epistle. God loved you and it's expressed in the giving of his word that makes you his child. You stay in that love by staying in his word. You stay in that love by keeping his commandments. And he mentions in this very text that that good hope as well as that everlasting consolation is by grace or as the Greek is in grace. It is in the sphere of grace where we find this consolation. It is in the sphere of grace where we find this good hope. And so we need to stay in it as well. In Romans, the fifth chapter and verse 20, we can understand why the grace of God gives us confidence in these things by this language. When the apostle Paul said, moreover, the law entered that the offense might abound, but where sin abounded, grace abounded much more so that as sin reigned in death, even so grace might reign through righteousness to eternal life through Jesus Christ, our Lord. How do we, how do we have confidence that we have everlasting consolation and good hope, but that it even lives up to its description, everlasting comfort, enduring and existing in every time and circumstance. How do we have confidence in that? Because the everlasting consolation and good hope is in grace and grace abounds much more. The sphere of grace is God's power to get us to heaven, to, to sanctify us completely to make us like His Son through His Word. And that grace will not fail at all. And so anything that He offers us in it is a certainty as long as we're in His grace. But you notice there in Romans 5 and in verse 21, He says, As sin reigned in death, grace reigns through righteousness. Now we can understand what he means by this. By the very beginning of the epistle to the Romans in chapter 1 and verse 16, he mentioned that he's not ashamed of the gospel because it is the power of God to salvation for everyone who believes. And he gives the reason for it. For in it, the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith. That it is written, the just shall live by faith. And so that grace reigns in the righteousness of God, which is revealed in the gospel. It's not his personal righteousness. In chapter 10, we can understand that of Romans by what he says the Jews were guilty of. They were ignorant of God's righteousness. They weren't ignorant that God was righteous, that he was pure, that he had a righteous character. They were ignorant of his plan for them to be righteous. And so they sought to establish their own plan of righteousness is what he's meaning. They have not submitted to the righteousness of God. Christ, who they rejected, is the end or goal of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. He's saying grace reigns in the sphere that God said it would reign. It does not conquer outside of the gospel. It does not conquer outside of God's plan. That everlasting consolation and that good hope that we have confidence in, the only confidence that we can actually have 
is being in the truth, is being grounded in the grace of God that is revealed in the truth. Notice in Titus 2 and in verse 11, Scripture that we all know, it elaborates on the grace of God for us. He says first that the grace of God that brings salvation has appeared to all men. The grace of God saves. We know that. We are saved by grace through faith. It's not of ourselves, not of works, lest anyone should boast. That grace saves, but that grace teaches us. And so it's in grace that we have this confidence of comfort everlasting and good hope. But it's the grace that teaches us and it teaches us specific things to deny ungodliness and worldly lusts. You don't live that way anymore. That's the grace of God. And he says to live soberly and righteously and godly in the present age. And so it's a complete transformation. And it's not by our works of merit, but by the grace of God through his gospel that we're transformed to live that way. It teaches us to change and it helps us change. And it gives us confidence looking for the blessed hope and glorious appearing of our great God and Savior Jesus Christ. And it gives us confidence that He's been given us that relationship. He's made us His own special people. He's purified us from every lawless deed and made us His special people. And that grace gives us zeal for good works. It is that grace in which this confidence of everlasting consolation is. And so consider the gift as we need to be strong in that grace. Second Timothy 2 and verse 1 We'll actually look at that in Bible class, Lord willing. The gift is everlasting consolation, eternal comfort. As the New American Standard Bible and the English Standard Version and the ASV renders it, comfort age during, I like, as Young's literal translation says it. And so it's comfort that is never ending and it's comfort that is always conquering in any situation. If you turn to this comfort, if you rely upon this comfort, there is not a thing that could happen to you on this terrestrial ball that would be able to conquer you. This comfort is enduring and everlasting. But you notice it's comfort associated with the word. The very need for their comfort came from error that had shaken them in their mind. And he tells them, don't be shaken in mind or troubled in chapter 2 and verse 2, either by spirit or word or by letter as if from us. Notice that spirit, word, and letter the spirit of prophecy, the written word or the spoken word and the letter. We never told you by inspiration or wrote to you by inspiration saying that the day of the Lord has passed. So don't even listen to it. If it's not from God, it causes trouble. But if it's from God, it causes comfort. So he reminds them in verse 5, Do you not remember that when I was still with you, I told you these things? If you remember the truth, you receive the comfort. You see that? It is in the Word of God. He says in verse 14, He called you by our gospel, not from some other source. In chapter 2 of 1 Thessalonians, He had mentioned consolation or exhortation in verse 3. He says our exhortation, that's the same word, everlasting consolation, it did not come from error or uncleanness, nor was it in deceit, but rather verse 13 You welcomed it, not as the word of men, but as it is in truth, the word of God, which also effectively works in you who believe. That everlasting comfort and consolation is found within the pages of inspiration. In Romans, the 15th chapter then, and in verse 4, the Apostle Paul wrote this, Whatever things were written before were written for our learning that we through the patience and comfort of the Scriptures might have hope. 
We know that that comfort, as we've already established, is a gift given from God. But he says it's through the scriptures. And then he says, may the God of patience and comfort grant you to be like minded toward one another. You see the connection there? He is the one who gives comfort, but he gives it to us through his word. In 1 Corinthians 14 and verse 3, you might remember when he's emphasizing the need to to value prophecy above tongue speaking, especially when there's not an interpreter. He says, he who prophesies speaks edification and exhortation and comfort to men. When we see and hear the word of God, we're comforted by it. This was Jesus's promise to his disciples and sending them the helper. Or if you're reading from a different translation, the comforter. He says, he'll pray the Father and he will give you another helper or comforter that he may abide with you forever. And he calls him the spirit of truth and the truth of God's will. There is comfort. He explains in verse 25, these things I have spoken to you while I was present with you. But when the helper or comforter, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he'll teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all things that I said to you. So peace I leave with you connected with that revelation. My peace I give to you. Not as the world gives do I give to you. Let your not, not your heart be troubled, nor let it be afraid. In chapter 16 and verse 33, he says, In the world you have tribulation, but be of good cheer. I have overcome the world. He leaves us the word of God, which brings us everlasting consolation and good hope. You notice in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 and in verse 13, he says to the brethren there that you should not sorrow about those who have fallen asleep in Christ, as others who have no hope. And he explains to them why and about the resurrection and they'll not precede them, but they'll be raised to an incorruptible body and form. He says in verse 18, comfort one another with these words. And the word of God spoken, the truth about anything spoken, there is comfort that we provide for one another. This is good hope. And it's good hope from the word of God because it will not disappoint And it will not disappoint because of its author. In chapter 1 of Titus, in verse 2, Titus speaks about that hope of God which cannot, who cannot lie promise before time began. We read a familiar passage in the Hebrew epistle, in Hebrews chapter 6, that shows us that this hope is good because of who gave it, its author. In verse 13, he explains, God made a promise to Abraham. Because he could swear by no one greater, he swore by himself, saying, Surely blessing I will bless you, and multiplying I will multiply you. And after he had patiently endured, he obtained the promise. And he elaborates on this a little bit for our good. He says, Men indeed swear by the greater. He made a promise, but then he swore. And men swear as an oath for confirmation is for them an end of all dispute. God didn't have to do that. He knows how it means to us. And so he wants to make sure we have unwavering confidence. Thus, God determining to show more abundantly to the heirs of promise, verse 17, the immutability of his counsel, confirmed it by an oath that by two immutable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, we might have strong consolation who have fled for refuge to lay hold of the hope set before us. If God makes a promise, then we can bank on it. It is something we can have confidence in. It is good hope because of its author, and it is good hope because of its content. The Apostle Paul explained to people who were being inconsistent with their beliefs about the resurrection that if in this life only we have hope, we are of all men the most pitiable. Our hope is not confined to this present life. It reaches beyond. It is a hope that is of an inheritance, incorruptible, undefiled, reserved in heaven for us. That can't be described of something in this life. Matthew chapter 6, Jesus 
speaks about how thieves can't break in and steal it. Moth and rust do not destroy. It's good hope. It's good hope because it's hope of heaven. I want us to notice, lastly, the effects that these gifts of everlasting consolation and good hope have on us. Obviously, through everlasting consolation that God has gifted us in His Word is a comfort of our heart. But I want us to notice the description of that by the Hebrew writer in Hebrews 6. As we follow what we just read, he said, God made a promise and confirmed it by an oath that by two immutable things, since it is impossible for God to lie, he says we might have strong consolation. Notice what he says, though. Who have fled for refuge to lay hold of the hope set before us. He's writing to people who are fleeing for refuge. They're being persecuted. That's the whole point of Hebrews is they're being persecuted and they're turning away from Christ back to the old law to avoid that persecution. They're fleeing for refuge. And he's telling them that the reason God makes a promise in Christ is so that you can flee to him for that refuge. And if you flee to him because his promise is certain, you have strong consolation. And notice what he describes it in verse 19. This hope we have as an anchor of the soul both sure and steadfast, which enters the presence behind the veil. Often within Scripture, troubles and heartaches and difficulties of this life are described as a storm, a tempestuous sea. And you're being thrown back and forth. He's saying the anchor that keeps you in one spot, in Christ, in this area of favor and hope and comfort, it is indeed the hope that God gives us through His promises, the hope that's attached to Jesus who is in heaven, who has went there so we can follow Him. There's no wonder why in Philippians chapter 2 and verse 1, he prefaces this plea to look out for each other with whether or not they have received comfort and consolation in Christ and comfort of love. The answer is a resounding yes, you have. Anybody in Christ who is faithful can attest to that. It comforts our hearts. And as our hearts are comforted, you notice there in 2 Thessalonians 2 and in verse 17, he says, may he comfort your hearts and establish you in every good word and work. If you're struggling to be faithful, if you're struggling to do constantly and consistently what Christ has called you to do, perhaps the answer to your problem is to look to that good hope is to seek and flee for refuge and seek that strong consolation which Christ offers us. If if you're confident in your salvation, if you're confident in your future of eternity, if you're confident in your relationship with God in Christ Jesus, then you will be doing what He says consistently. You'll never choose to do something otherwise. And when we do, it's because we're not thinking about these things He's established us with. Notice in 1 Corinthians 15 and in verse 32, what the Apostle Paul says about the hope that we have. He says, first, if, if we don't have hope, if in the manner of men I fought with beasts at Ephesus, what advantage is it to me? If the dead don't rise, if we don't have hope, let us eat and drink for tomorrow we die. If, if you're struggling, you're probably not thinking about the future and the confidence of heaven. Because if you have confidence in heaven, why would you ever squander it with this world? He says, don't be deceived. Evil company corrupts good habits. That false teaching is leading to your immorality. Instead, because you know you'll be raised, awake to righteousness and do not sin. Some do not have this knowledge. I speak this to your shame. He said in verse 58, 
based on the truth of that resurrection and the hope that these brethren have. My beloved brethren, be steadfast and movable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing your labor is not in vain in the Lord. There in Hebrews chapter 6, preceding the passage we just read, he encouraged those brethren to show the same diligence they had before to the full assurance of hope until the end, that they do not become sluggish, but imitate those through who faith and patience inherit the promises. When God promised Abraham, Abraham then had hope of something in the future. And because he had that confidence, based on God's work to make sure he had that strong consolation and confidence, he was able to patiently endure and receive the promise. Thank God that He's given us everlasting consolation, comfort in any and every circumstance through His Word, through His promise, through His plan, closely tied and intimately related to our good hope, that future of eternal glory in heaven with Him. May we ever turn to Him for that comfort and dwell on that hope and understand where it's found in Christ, in His Word, and in our relationship with God through Him. Thank you for your kind attention. Before we dismiss to our classes, we'll be led in a word of prayer.